So Acts chapter 11, 19 to 30. And I'd like to start with a question this morning for us. Imagine 50 or 100 years from now, the history of Community Bible Church being written. And the question is, what do you want them to say about us? That we were a small church who managed to survive and to hang on in a hostile religious culture? Or that we were a safe and cozy haven for believers to help them and their families keep their faith in a stressful environment? Or that we had a bit of an impact despite being in a tough community, that we worked hard and we bore a little bit of fruit for Jesus? Or would you like historians to write a story about us which will inspire and challenge the faith of those who hear it? About the amazing things God did, the amazing impact that God had in us and through us out into our region and even the world, far beyond our size, far beyond our resources? Would you like there to be stories about the amazing things God did through people here who were committed to him, who trusted him deeply, and who were used by him in ways that brought God great glory and showed his grace and his power? That's what I want them to say about us. And that's the kind of church we read about in today's passage, the church in Antioch. This is a church which in Acts is going to quickly become the sending base for the entire mission to the Roman world. So far in Acts, we've seen Jesus's followers be witnesses to Jesus about what they saw and heard about his life and his death and resurrection and how through Jesus, God was offering forgiveness and new life and salvation. We've seen them be witnesses to this first in Jerusalem where it all began and then in Judea and Samaria And then we saw how God worked in the Apostle Peter and in the church in Jerusalem, the mothership, so to speak, to break down walls and barriers of prejudice among them, to open their hearts, to open the way for them to share the good news about Jesus to those who weren't Jewish and to accept those from other nations, other ethnicities, other religious backgrounds as equal members among God's people. If you were here the last three weeks, you saw that story. And so now the stage is set as we move now further into chapter 11 of Acts for the message of Jesus to go out all over the Roman Empire and to the ends of the earth. And Antioch is the place from which this is going to happen. Not from Jerusalem. Not by the 12 apostles, surprisingly. They give permission, as we saw over the last couple weeks, but Then God runs ahead of them and uses others, and we'll find those in Jerusalem are going to be playing catch-up. Antioch is going to be the sending base from which the mission is launched. But interestingly, when today's story begins, there's nothing in Antioch, spiritually speaking. There are no followers of Jesus. There are no apostles. There are no leaders. There are no churches. But God in power is going to make something out of nothing, something powerful, something transformative. And let's take a look at how it happens. And as we do, the ingredients which go into this new church becoming a powerful mission base, they can be instructive for us if we want God to use us as well. 
So to start off, Luke, the writer of Acts, takes us back to earlier in the story that he's been telling. To when a great persecution had broken out against the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem, and they had had to scatter. And now Luke tells us where some more of them wound up going. Yeah, that slide. (laughs) Maybe I should add some dramatic music to the different points of my sermon. That could really jazz things up. (laughs) Anyway, so where did they wind up going? Well, some of them fled all the way to Phoenicia and to Cyprus and to Antioch. They are uh, now out beyond, they're fleeing out beyond the borders of Judea, beyond the borders of God's country, so to speak, out into Gentile country, out into the the, uh, pagan world of the Roman Empire. Phoenicia is 100 miles north of Jerusalem. Cyprus is an island in the Mediterranean. It's 250 miles out. Antioch is in now what we call Turkey, and it's 300 miles from Jerusalem. And those who have fled off to these places, Luke tells us, are not Hebraic Jews. They're not those who speak the Jewish language and who grew up in the Jewish motherland with its traditions and its life revolving around the law and the temple. But rather, they're Hellenistic Jews. They're Greek-speaking Jews, originally from Jewish expat communities in Cyprus, that island there in the Mediterranean, and Cyrene, which is in North Africa. So these are Jews who grew up in the Gentile world. They speak the language, they know the culture, and in some cases they're returning to places that they're familiar with. And some of them, if we can have the next slide, go to Antioch, which was one of the largest cities of the Roman Empire. Antioch is located in what was then Syria on an important trade route, and so it was a center of commerce and culture, It was also a political and military center. It was the the headquarters from which Rome ruled that whole part of its empire. And so there are legions of soldiers garrisoned there. And it's an administrative and a political center for Jerusalem, Judea, and the rest of, of that part of the world. Antioch was densely populated. It was diverse and cosmopolitan. It's about what you would expect from any great city. And as you often find in big cities and diverse cities, people tend to push the boundaries there of what is considered right and proper. They're less likely to cling to the old ways. City people are exposed to all kinds of new people and cultures. And so they try things, they innovate, they experiment. And Luke tells us in verse 20 that some of the Hellenistic Jews who now follow Christ, who have now fled to this city, they start telling not only Jews, but also Greeks about Jesus. In other words, they tell Gentiles. We just spent three Sundays, right, seeing how big of a deal this was, how radical, how unpopular back in and around Jerusalem it was with many. We saw Peter sort of get dragged by God into pioneering the possibility down in Caesarea and then getting roundly criticized for it when he went back home to Jerusalem until he could articulate so clearly how God had led him. Then people said, okay, I guess it must be okay. But as we'll see throughout the New Testament, having uncircumcised Gentiles in the church remains unpopular with many. Well, now here in Antioch are some other Jewish followers of Jesus. We don't even know their names. And they're seeming to just do this on their own, of their own initiative. They're inviting Gentiles to follow Jesus too. 
And so here we have the first ingredient of what will will make Antioch a great mission base. Leaders who are flexible and innovative and even edgy. They're pushing the boundaries. And when the Jerusalem church hears that again Gentiles are joining as followers of Jesus, they do what they always do when someone pushes the boundaries and innovates. They send someone they trust to go and investigate. Interestingly, this time they don't send one of the 12 apostles like they've done in the past. Instead, this time they send a guy nicknamed Barnabas. We've met Barnabas before in Acts. His uh, nickname means son of encouragement or son of exhortation. And we've seen that he's a generous man. We saw him selling land to help the poor. We've seen that he's a bridge builder. He's an advocate. We saw him take a big risk in order to help out Saul, to help Saul get into the good graces of the Jerusalem church when they all distrusted him. And now the church trusts Barnabas enough that they send him to check out the sketchy, unpopular thing that's happening up in Antioch. Interestingly, Barnabas is from Cyprus originally, so maybe he knows some of the folks who've started this new community of Jesus followers in Antioch. And Barnabas could have been suspicious of this Gentile thing that's happening. He could have been critical. He could have been prejudiced. But Barnabas is not these things. He's supportive. He celebrates this innovation, this this flexible, edgy new development happening in Antioch. Unless we wonder about his judgment, Luke tells us in verse 24, Barnabas is a good man. Churches which have missional impact, which flex, uh, um, sorry, rather churches which have missional impact, one of the things that they are is they are flexible. They innovate, they experiment. And their leaders lead the way in this. As opposed to leaders who are reactive and bureaucratic. Right? We've never done it that way before. Gentiles in the church, we've never done it that way before. Let's spend six months debating it in committee and then we'll get back to you. How about CBC? Well, from what I've heard about Community Bible Church's earliest years back in the 1970s, We were known as a creative and even avant-garde church. In fact, I believe we were even written up in Christianity Today as a model of a young, sort of hip church which wasn't afraid to try new things. Uh, But we can get bogged down in bureaucracy at times, can't we? Sometimes decisions take months and months to make. Almost 10 years ago, we had a, a consulting group, CMA, come in and do a health assessment on where we were strong, where we needed to grow because we were weak. And one of the things that they flagged was that a church our size should be able to get things done quickly and efficiently, but instead that we had layers of decision-making, which sometimes bogged us down and slowed us down. And that remains a challenge that we haven't totally solved. Well, second, the the church in Antioch is God-empowered, not self-reliant. Look at verse 21. When the Jewish followers of Jesus from Cyprus and Cyrene begin speaking not only to Jews, but also to Greeks about Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. The Lord's hand was with them, and as a result, many people turned to the Lord. Verse 21. In fact, Luke highlights two other times Just how many people turn to the Lord. In verse 24 as well, Barnabas arrives. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He exhorts them to remain true to the Lord. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. 
And then a third time in verse 25, when Barnabas and Saul teach, Luke tells us they teach great numbers of people. God is doing something big in Antioch, Luke wants us to know. By God's power, great numbers of people are choosing to follow Jesus. This church is God-empowered. The Lord's hand is with them. They are not doing this in their own strength. How about us? This is an area where I know I'm trying to grow and that I need to grow because I can be too self-reliant. Everything in the culture pushes me in that direction. Have you experienced that? After all, we're in New York, right? Our theme song, one of them is, I did it my way. We're all about self-reliance, using our brains, using our competence, using our connections, using our chutzpah to get things done and, and make something happen. And read just about any American book written for pastors like me or, or listen to any podcast about church and ministry, and they're all about how to do it better, how to do it smarter, about technique, about uh, their better idea that you can try too, so that, so that you're smarter and you're on the cutting edge. And they're hardly ever about relying on God more. So if we're going to be used greatly by God as a mission base, we're going to have to go against the tide of our culture, even Christian culture, and be more reliant on God's power which starts with prayer. Third ingredient in the church of Antioch, they're evangelistic. They actively tell people the good news about Jesus, right? That's, that's in their DNA right from the start. When Jews from Cyprus and Cyrene come to Antioch, they're, they're on the run from persecution. They've been uprooted. They've no doubt left loved ones behind. Perhaps they've lost property and money, but are they preoccupied with all of these problems and with just surviving? No, they're, they're infectiously enthusiastic about Jesus. They're busy telling anyone who will listen about Jesus as they go. Jewish people like them and Gentiles too. It doesn't matter. They want people to know about Jesus. As Michael Green of England memorably put it, they're gossiping the gospel all over the Roman Empire. Contrast that with many churches today which are attractional, which hide in the safety of our church buildings and just hope someone will come and find us. <laughs> and so we try to put on a, a really good program so we'll be attractive when they come. So hopefully they'll stay. But most of those who do come are already Christians. Most of them, if they weren't going to our church, would go, be going to the church down the street. Did you know, do you realize that if you build it, they will come is not actually in the Bible? Those in Antioch know this. They, they're busy telling people about Jesus. And you know, I've got evangelistic trauma too, like some of you do. <laughs> As a young person, I was trained to share my faith in ways which were corny, which were awkward, which were canned, which were obnoxious, which were forced. And yet I was pressured and guilted into doing it anyway. And so I have baggage about this. And I've had to detox. I've had to unlearn most of it. And, and then to learn ways instead that are gracious and natural and respectful to share my faith. But I'm also becoming more and more convinced that it's absolutely necessary that we rediscover our voice in, in telling people the good news about Jesus and how amazing Jesus is. Otherwise, there will be no Christians in America in a generation or two. Jesus will be unknown here. But when we speak the message about Jesus and we model it, we live it out as well. It's powerful. It changes lives. It changes communities. And we need to share it because it's great news. 
Notice also, fourth, the church in Antioch is diverse. You know, since the 1980s, the prevailing wisdom in America has been that the best way to grow your church is to figure out who you want to reach and cater just to that target group. It's called the homogeneity principle. That like attracts like, and people are most comfortable being around their own. The only problem is that it isn't biblical. Like attracts like, but Jesus attracts all sorts of diverse people. Jews and Gentiles, Cyrenes, Cyprenes, Antiochenes. The church of Antioch is diverse. And CBC is relatively diverse, aren't we? Why? Well, well, I think and I hope it's because we lift up Jesus here. Not one brand of politics or, or doctrine, not cultural Christianity, but Jesus. And Jesus attracts all sorts of people to himself. He's full of life. He's magnetic. He's full of good news. He's an amazing, wise teacher. He offers grace. He offers transformation. He reconnects us with God. So the question is, do we embrace our diversity? Do, do we think, how can I make those unlike me feel more at home here? What kind of music would they like? What kind of ministries would they find helpful? What are they struggling with? Do I know? Have I bothered to ask, to listen, to get to know them? What do they have to contribute to our church? Do, do they have a voice in the decisions we make and in the kind of church that we're becoming? Is it their church too or is it just my church, our church? Being diverse is harder than having everyone else be like me. It, it takes more work. It, it, there's more potential for misunderstanding and miscommunication. It, it requires me to be less selfish but Jesus has this way of attracting all sorts of people when we join him in his mission. Fifth, the, the leadership model of the church in Antioch is not clergy plus committee. Antioch is not led by one official seminary trained super Christian who's more holy than everyone else and knows how to do everything. Along with a committee who support that clergy person or when necessary, keep them in check. That's not the model in Antioch. In fact, who's the leader of the church in Antioch? It's not quite clear, is it? First of all, there isn't a single one of the 12 apostles anyone, anywhere near this church. The, the Jerusalem church sent Barnabas, who so far as we know up to this point, has no leadership position in the church. And then Barnabas goes and gets Saul, who also has no leadership per, position at this point in time so far as we know. In fact, we haven't heard of Saul for years in the story of Acts. Though later, both Barnabas and Saul will be official leaders and we have no idea who these jews from cyprene and and cyrene are who started this church sorry cyprus and cyrene we don't know their names even and then later agabus and some other prophets come and they speak significantly into the priorities of these church so who's in charge it's not a clergy committee model but a team leadership model antioch is led and influenced by a team of leaders with a variety of gifts and notice which gifts those who start the church definitely are gifted as evangelists. Barnabas comes. He's an exhorter, an, an encourager, and also a teacher. Later, he'll also be called an apostle, though he's not one of the 12 apostles. Barnabas brings Saul to help him. Saul's also a teacher who later will be an apostle as well. And then we have prophets. We have Agabus and others who come to visit and to contribute. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers. Add shepherds before teachers and you have APEST for short, the acronym a lot of people are using these days. 
all of these different gifts. This is a team approach. And, and notice it's not just shepherds who can feed us, or sorry, teachers who can feed us and shepherds who can take care of us. Those are the ones that we often stick on our committees and hire as our pastors. But in Antioch, there are also apostles who, who push us out, who say, shouldn't we be starting another church over there? Shouldn't we be reaching out to those people over there? And, and prophets who shake us up and say, God, what a, or, or guys, what about those who are suffering? What about the poor? God says we should dig deep in our pockets and help them. Let's take a collection. And evangelists who, who keep reminding us of those who don't know Jesus yet and press us to find ways to get the good news out to them. That's part of what make this, makes this church in Antioch and throughout the book of Acts so dynamic. All these different gifts working together. And we as leaders at CBC, we've been wrestling with whether there are uh, better ways to lead and to organize ourselves, to be a team and to involve more voices and more gifts. So that we're not just administering and, and keeping things smoothly organized and offering teaching to the faithful, but so that we're also discerning God's guidance, so that we're pushing out in mission, so that we're raising up and launching new leaders. And, and we don't know what all the answers are yet, but um, we're trying to figure out how to better do this. And so it's something that we're working through. Six, the church in Antioch are spirit-directed, not just rationalistic. Sure, they use their brains that God has given them. And some, like Saul, are highly, highly educated. But they're also reliant on the direction of the Holy Spirit. Verse 28, here's where those prophetically gifted come in. Prophets come down, they visit Antioch, one is named Agabus, and he senses by the Spirit that a famine is coming. And, and at his prompting, everyone decides to contribute what they can to help those back in Judea who, for various reasons which we don't have time to go into, are going to be hardest hit by this famine. And so notice the fruit of this prophecy. The prophecy is bad news. A famine is coming. But it doesn't lead to fear like bad news so often does today, even in the church. But, you know, oh man, what, what can I do to take care of myself to, to hoard? You know, should I buy silver? Should I, uh, you know, what, what should I do? No, this prophecy leads to generosity. To care for those far away who need care. Oh man, these poor people down in Judea, our brothers and sisters there, what can we do to help them? These people are spirit-led, not rationally led. So they have the heart of Jesus, not fleshly, selfish hearts. That's what the Spirit does when we allow the Spirit to lead us. And that leads to seventh, the, the church in Antioch is generous with their money, with their resources, and even with their people, with their leaders. Right? They send Saul and Barnabas to Jerusalem with the money that they've collected for famine relief. Saul and Barnabas, two great leaders whose teaching they've just enjoyed for a whole year. Now they're sending them off on a mission. And this will not be the last time that they send them off. They're generous, even with their leaders. This church is about something bigger than themselves. So many churches are all about self-preservation and self-promotion, thinking about how they can survive or, or how they can grow themselves, and not about the bigger picture that they're part of, the bigger movement, the bigger kingdom, the bigger mission that they're part of. But the church in Antioch is different. They're very aware that someone else sacrificed so they could know Jesus. 
so they could be blessed. And they're going to pay it forward. They're going to sacrifice so someone else can as well. That's the kind of church God can use. That's the kind of church out of which can be birthed an amazing movement of God. And then finally, eighth, the church in Antioch is a challenging church, challenging culture. They set the bar high for what it means to follow Jesus. Look how Luke summarizes Barnabas' message to this church. I'm sure Barnabas said a lot of things. You know, he taught there for a year. But Luke summarizes it like this, verse 23. Barnabas encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their heart. Isn't that great? How about you? Do you feel encouraged by CBC to remain true to the Lord with all of your heart? That word encouraged, by the way, can also be translated exhorted. Do you feel exhorted? Do you feel challenged to remain true with all of your heart? True to Jesus because Jesus is your Lord. He's worthy of your allegiance. He's worthy of your commitment. He's worthy of your trust and your sacrifice. Those in Antioch thought so. You know, ask any sociologist and they will tell you that communities that are comfortable, that just want to fit in and look like everyone else, maybe except for this little bitty thing that we accept Jesus as our Savior. Shh, don't tell anyone. That those kinds of comfortable churches never really have a big impact. Whether you find or wherever you find a truly impactful community, wherever you find a multiplying movement of God, you find people who are all in, who are deeply committed. Margaret Mead summed it up famously. She's a sociologist, not a Christian. But she said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Think of those who are driving the agenda in our country who are shaping the culture today in terms of sexuality, in terms of those sorts of values. They're not the majority. They're the minority, but they're all in. They're committed. They're willing to sacrifice for their vision of how things should be. So let me ask, where are the followers of Jesus? Where's our commitment? Where's our conviction? That's why I've been praying God, we desperately need you to revive us, to renew us, to breathe new life and power into our hearts. That's what the church in Antioch had. They were committed. They were alive. Theirs was a challenging environment. And so as we close, these are a lot of ingredients, eight of them. Don't worry about remembering all of them (laughs) or digesting all of them even. Just ask yourself, which one of the eight is tugging at your heart? Or poking at your conscience this morning? Which one? Which one might God be trying to get your attention about this morning? I'll give you just a, a second to think about that before we close in prayer. Which one of, whichever one of those eight you feel God is putting on your heart or drawing you to your attention to, that's the one to take home with you today. That's the one to remember and to let God lead you and to let God move you forward in relation to it. And if we all do that, we all do that, we'll together take a step forward toward being a church that makes a difference and that God can use powerfully for the sake of his mission here in this region and around the world. Let's pray. God, as we prepare to come to your table, 
to remember how much you sacrificed, the amazing example you set. We thank you for the book of Acts and the way that you have given us the story of how your first followers lived out the amazing teaching and example of Jesus in their everyday lives. Thank you for their example. I pray that you would speak to us through it and that you would lead us forward, making us more and more into the church you want us to be. Amen.